I'm Jamie Lewis, a food and drink writer based in San Luis Obispo, California. And this is Consumed, a podcast about eaters, drinkers, makers, and thinkers across California and at its heart, the Central Coast. Thank you for listening. Consumed is sponsored by my friends at Slow Life Magazine. I remember when Slow Life first came out, it was a skinny but mighty magazine intent on sharing the stories of people who live, work, play, and give in San Luis Obispo. Today, the magazine is no longer skinny at all. It packs loads of interviews, information, inspiring stories, and my food column, which covers dining trends up and down the coast. Find Slow Life in your mailbox every other month by subscribing at slowlifemagazine.com. Today, I sit down with David Walker, one half of the wildly successful Firestone Walker Brewery based out of Paso Robles on California's Central Coast. In 1995, David and his brother-in-law, Adam Firestone, of the multi-generational Firestone Winery in Santa Barbara County, decided to launch a small craft brewery in wine country. Unbeknownst to either of them, the iron was hot for striking. Firestone Walker grew exponentially, first on the popularity of its double barrel ale, or DBA, and later on both geeky barrel-aged ales and the easy-drinking 805 beer, which has really come to embody the spirit of the Central Coast. A few years ago, the Belgian brewery Duvel Morgat acquired Firestone Walker, a purchase that represented a vote of confidence in the brewery, the market, and in the region. Today, Firestone Walker is the fifth largest craft brewery by volume in the United States, and it's still operated by David Walker, Adam Firestone, and a dedicated team of employees, some who've been there from day one. Here, David and I talk about the differences between wine people and beer people, the history of American craft brewing, and what an Englishman eats and drinks for his final meal. Enjoy my talk with David Walker. David Walker, thank you so much for sitting down with me. My pleasure. You don't know this, but you are, um, it's a real honor to be with you because Firestone Walker has been uh, our house brand for a long time. That's good to hear. And DBA is our house beer. It is That's just even better. I know. Hear. It just remains so balanced and uh and consistent and always lovely and everybody likes it because it's not so hoppy as to throw say my parents off who are kind yeah. of traditional beer drinkers, but it's not so unhoppy to um upset the IPA drinkers. Yeah, you know DBA is really the story of our brewery in some ways. Actually it's a story to me, of the sort of modern American craft beer movement. Um, it was the first beer we made. It's an English pale ale. Um, obviously, that speaks to me for, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, Adam and I thought it was the only beer that we were ever going to have to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we, DBA is, DBA used to be our flagship beer. It's no longer. It's a, it's a, it's a small part of our total operation now. Um, and if you look at the modern American palette, it doesn't hold any of the dimensions that they're looking for anymore. They, you know, modern American palette with beer is, is looking for hop forward, mm-hmm. fruit flavors, um, uh, cloudy. Um, you know, it's an extraordinary evolution. And DBA is really seen as, in most cases, someone's father's beer. No, um, yeah. I can't. I actually can't accept that. Well, that's good. I love you for it. It's my favorite beer. I like to say I drink a DBA every day. Which it I really is. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, 
My husband and I lived in New Zealand in 2008, and we had lived here before and have watched Firestone Walker rise. I actually worked for Curtis Winery, which was owned by yeah, Firestone for a time. Absolutely. Um, but so we were very familiar with it, proud of it as being a local beer, but we discovered how not local it is when we were in New Zealand because my husband worked for Moa Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. And I worked for the winery across the street, and we were invited out to dinner with a beer journalist named Jeff Griggs. And he hmm. sat down with us and asked us where we were from. And when we told him, he said, that's Firestone Walker country. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, and we were really shocked at yeah. the growth. I mean, clearly now it's a global, yeah. a global thing. Well, I mean, it's – and you've got to remember, we started before the internet really got going. So um, – I mean, I say that. I mean, no, not, that's true. Ninety yeah. six, yeah, ninety five, ninety six. But I mean, the first tweets went out in ninety six, I think. Um, so, uh, the point that I'm making is that you know the world's a lot smaller because of social media. I mean, we don't sell beer in New Zealand, but people are fully aware of our brewery because mm-hmm. people who who are passionate, engaged with craft beer or or beer culture, they want to know about it. And we're obviously a we're a we're a um, uh, you know, a, a driver in West Coast beer. And I would like to say that, you know, the, the, the California beer movement has changed the world of beer. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a little bit of, um, you know, there's a little bit of that involved in that discussion. Yeah. Yeah. You were just telling me that uh, you and Adam Firestone, well, you both started in wine. So what was your involvement in the wine business before you started Firestone? Well, it, like I said, it was, um, Adam was running... The Firestone Winery, third generation um, uh, family member running the winery. Um, I was um, living in the same valley uh, on a vineyard, growing grapes, um, uh, and but I was making a living in the Silicon Valley. Um, ah, okay. And, this uh, was a side gig. Yeah, <laughs> okay. um, and um, the the uh, you know that's how we we sort of became. I mean, other than being brothers in law, that's how we became fast friends. I mean, um, and we had a lot of. Um, you know, there's a lot of simpatico with the sort of artisanal way of I like to say we had an artisanal bias. Mm. Um, you know, I was as fascinated with taking stuff from soil to glass um, as anybody. And um, uh, likewise, Adam was obviously completely buried in it. I mean, he'd grown up in it. I mean, yeah. he'd, he'd, he'd sat in the, the bleachers of the modern American wine movement. So, you know, what's essentially happened in craft beer um, is is very much mirrors that, and um, it was very reflexive for us to sort of trust that the American consumer was willing to move away from, um, you know, uh, heavily advertised, um, somewhat generic, um, cheap beer brands, mm-hmm. um, which seems obvious now, but but it wasn't then. Yeah, I mean, our biggest issue, actually, I like to say, twenty five years ago wasn't figuring out how to make small batch beer. It was dealing with consumers' indifference. Wow. I mean, they just weren't, they just weren't engaged in the discussion. Can you imagine indifference now? No, We exactly. could actually stand yeah. to have a little more indifference. There are so <laughs> many opinions. Right, absolutely. So many beards. Yeah. So many beards. I'm shocked that you don't have a beard. <laughs> yeah, and beer people now. are different than, um, than wine people. And yeah. ha- I mean, I know you know that, but how would you describe that difference? Well, I would say craft Beer people are similar to, um, you know, what you might call new world wine folks. Um, because craft beer movement is younger than the American wine movement, 
um, probably a lot of the punk rockers in the wine movement look like old farts now to craft beer guys. So <laughs> there's a generational thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they're very much the same. They're all, I mean, it, actually, you know, we're in Paso Robles. And if you look at the wine movement in Paso Robles, it's really interesting. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of traditions that folks shake off. Yeah. Um, they're making great wine in, in sort of non-traditional formats. Um, and, you know, so there's obviously great connection with craft brewers in that way. Mm. Um, but they're still winemakers and we're still brewers. I mean, yeah. brewers are trained in, in a different way to winemakers. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of um, a conservative, um, somewhat Teutonic discipline to brewing that even craft brewers doff, you know, uh, tip their cap to. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, once a year we make a, an anniversary beer. We blend it with local winemakers. The reason why we blend it with local winemakers is, is because they sort of give us license to to get crazy with blending. Mm-hmm. Um, as brewers, it's not natural to blend different flavors. I mean, you you essentially set out to make a beer, and you're sort of disappointed if you don't hit the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I've ever made wine, but I get the sense with winemakers, there's so much more destiny in a wine. Um, that can be it can be adjusted, adjusted, explained away, or even yeah. acknowledged um, tongue in, so tongue in cheek yeah, <laughs> so, right. later on. <clears throat> right. So, yeah, um, I know that uh, you were saying that you started uh, Firestone Walker with the hope of making something that you would drink because you both were beer drinkers, right? And that's a pretty common thing, I think, um, among winemakers anyway, is it takes a lot of good beer to make good wine. So what has the arc been over the course of the past 25 years? I mean, has it been a smooth, you know, just a totally natural arc or has it been fits and starts? No, I mean, we never set out to be the size we are. I mean, we are, the, I think, the third largest craft brewer in california and probably one of the top 10 in america amazing um, we 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 i promise you we never we never dreamed that we would become what we've become um you know and we we grew very slowly i mean there's a lot of small upstart breweries today that grow have grown grown a lot faster than we have um you know that i think in our first it, you know it, it it took us 15 years really to get established um, it took us ten years to legitimately turn a profit um, and stop borrowing money. And that, well, we were still borrowing money, but um, uh, but the, the you know the, the point I'm making is the first fifteen years we were somewhat what I like to say mortal, and then um, you know we obviously um, there was great serendipity when we developed eight hundred five, yeah. um, and we sort of celebrated the terroir who our brewery's from and who we are and the people who work at the brewery. And for some reason, that resonated with the state of California. And um, we then grew um, um, very rapidly. And um, so in, you know, um, from year 15 to year 20, we we, uh, sort of quadrupled in size. Um, when, When I think about all of the effort and movement and decisions and mistakes and right moves it had taken us to get to 15 years to actually quadruple the size of the business in five was insanely difficult mm-hmm. and um but um you know we were we were up for it we were in the thick of it we we're having fun and mm-hmm. we you know it happened what were some of those mistakes i'm curious to know the ones that you're willing to share oh god i mean they're just 
endless, you know, and endless, <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, everything from, uh, having to throw away a batch of beer to, you know, having a long-term relationship with the wrong wholesaler to mm. saying the wrong thing to the wrong person, um, to, um, you know, um, hiring the wrong person, not showing enough love to the right person. I mean, it's mm. just just a million things that would occur. I mean, there was no, there was no sort of um, huge systemic mistake that we made along the way. I mean, um, just the sort of rough and tumble of of you know running a brewery, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. or any business. Yeah, any business, exactly. Right. Yeah. When you talk about the association with California. From the beginning. Yeah. That relates back to, I'm looking at your shirt with the logo, the Firestone Walker logo. Yeah. And I know that the lion and the bear has really become, it's a huge part of the message of yeah. the brewery. That's, you know, it's great that you recognize that. Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, what I call P.T. Barnum to the beer business. And you've got to have, you know, you, you, you've got to have these things that, that people can remember and, and, and these, these sort of bite-sized pieces. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Adam and I were always, we, we always, um, you know, we came together because we, first of all, we, you know, both of us love this idea of, of sort of honest family enterprise. And we thought, you know what, let's see what we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Firestone Walker Brewing Company sort of is, is the moniker, but, Ultimately, we wanted to create something a little bit more um, graphical, and, and uh, you know, one of the smart guys who works in our uh, marketing department um, came up with this idea of a you know a lion um, that represented England and a bear that represented California, and um, and because we're also very different. I mean, you know, Adam is a Californian and I'm I'm English. We have we 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 tackle things differently. We look at the world differently. So we're always. Um, we're, you know, we're always sort of arguing e- with each other over things, and um, that has been a dynamic that both of us have recognised in the partnership. That you know, basically, out of the out of you, know, you could call it inadvertent conflict comes comes you know a bigger um, a bigger result. Mm. And um, we actually at the brewery call it the Lion and Bear Spirit, and so yeah. we encourage people to challenge the status quo, yeah. um, challenge each other, yeah. disagree with each other respectfully, um, and. Um, so it means a lot to us. Yeah. Um, is it, yeah. It's a John Lennon and Paul McCartney sort of situation. I'll take it. I'm John, I'm John Lennon. <laughs> um, where did you grow up in England? Um, you know, I grew up in a sleepy little county called Devon. Um, and just outside of a town called Plymouth, which is uh, well known for right. where the pilgrims took off. Um, and Still uh, somewhat puritanical? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I get the feeling all the Puritans left and came to America, didn't they? <laughs> it was, <laughs> there was just too much dancing going on yes, in, right. in, in Britain. I mean, I think that's why they left is it wasn't, um, anyway, yeah, lots um, of reasons how life's changed. Um, but, um, yeah, no, uh, yeah, all, all roads lead to London. I found myself, uh, I, I got into the computer business really young and sort of 21 years of age, um, and uh, started doing work in California, um, so got a taste for California. Then I fell in love with a um, a Californian 
um, my wife um, of 28 years. Mm -hmm. And um, she was living in London at the time. Um, and uh, we decided to get married. And um, it was easy enough for me to move back to California. And it was not a hard deal with the sunshine. And, right. Um, and um, uh, we, uh, we, we sort of set about building a life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's how we're here. You yeah. Know, just, yeah. Did you seek out San Inez for anything in particular? No, it was sort of weird. You know, as I said, we were in the, I, you know, I, we initially were sort of heading for the Silicon Valley and we, um, we sort of got going on a family quickly and it was, it was actually cheaper to buy a bankrupt three bedroom <laughs> disused vineyard in the, in, uh, just outside of Bjorton, um, they couldn't give it away than a three-bedroom house in Pleasanton in the Silicon Valley. Right. And um, you know, I was flying her all over the place. And um, my wife's family, my wife grew up there. My, my wife's mm-hmm. family obviously were in the wine business. Mm-hmm. So she, she, she said, look, you know, let's, let's, um, let's settle here for a while. And we've been there ever since. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the, you know, I think about the flavors, the culture, the style around beer between England, and I know I'm speaking very broadly about an entire country, yeah. um, but, you know, the lion and the bear, the English and the Californian or West Coast style of beer. I mean, what do you see as the differences? Well, you know, when, when uh, you know, um, American beer, the, the story of American beer is fascinating. I mean, it goes back to so much. It goes back to... Prohibition goes back to the uh, Second World War, um, um, and you know the brewing traditions in America were classically German, um, and um, and you know obviously that happened with early sort of migration, um, and the, you know, the Germans just sort of said, "Hey, we're doing the brewing." And in fact, in mm-hmm. in the U.S. up until you know post Prohibition. You know, you actually spoke the German language in the brew house. Is that right? Yeah. Um, People who didn't speak German necessarily. Well, that yeah, was it, the was, language. it was just part of the deal. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know whether it was a whether that's urban myth or not, but um, I've heard it before. So, yeah. um, so you know, the Germans sort of owned the the market, and then um, you know what happened is the the you know the classic sort of beautiful German pilsners and lagers mm-hmm. that are you know we taste when we go to Munich and and uh, when you go to Bavaria and throughout Germany. Um, they basically slowly got diluted down. And, um, you know, one could argue they got diluted down because post-prohibition people wanted a beer that was a little bit more drinkable. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a discussion that says that, you know, post the Second World War, women were drinking in pubs more and they wanted mm-hmm. to make a beer a little bit more drinkable for women. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. But whatever happened, um, American beer sort of moved away from that traditional lager and pilsner flavor from Europe and became its own American light pilsners. Mm. And um, so the American, the American beer palate became pretty bland, frankly. Yeah. Um, and um, it was then homogenized as America was in, you know, developed from an industrial standpoint and you had cold chain and uh, breweries like Anheuser-Busch were able to exploit the whole country and not just regionally. Mm. Um, and so you know, that beer developed along commercial lines. Um, so um, when the American craft beer movement showed up and sort of said, you know, we want to do something different, um, um, they basically took sort of the, the seeds of the old European beers, and in the case, mostly it was ales. Yeah. Um, 
And because, you know, bass, even though it was getting shipped over from Britain, it was sitting on a boat for, you know, too long and it was, it was, it was heavily pasteurized and it, it didn't taste great. Yeah. Um, I mean, forgive me. I mean, I'm sure it tasted just fine to people who enjoyed bass. But, but it, it wasn't at its optimal. It wasn't at its optimal. People weren't tasting the real thing necessarily. Bingo, bingo. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, brewers started to make those beers. And then classically, they started to riff on them, and especially in the West, mm. um, the brewers started to use these sort of, um, uh, you know, floral, full-flavored hops out of uh, the Pacific Northwest. And, and at that point, the sort of California Pale Ale was born. I mean, Liberty Ale, um, which is not, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not a California Pale Ale, but you could argue it was the first really interesting individual California beer. And then you roll into Ken Grossman's Sierra um, Pale Ale. And before you know it, you've born this sort of – this hybrid of an English Pale Ale, London Pride, um, that you'd, you know, you'd order in a pub in London. Um, instead of using these, these mild English hops, we're using these floral sort of in-your-face West Coast hops. Mm. And um, this whole sort of hop um, – uh, romance begins and that's really it really is you know craft beer has been driven by hops a little bit like i would say the american wire movement was driven by fruit yeah. um and it's just bringing those flavors forward and um uh that's you know that's uh, in very simple terms that's that's really what happened yeah and access to hops i'm sure as well and yeah. the freshness of the hops being because i mean cascade something coming from mm-hmm. new zealand um it would have to be very fresh um, to be usable. Absolutely. And also hop botany. I mean, you know, once upon a time, um, you know, hop farmers, you know, they're, they're farmers. They, they need to sell their crops. So they're going to make, they're gonna make a, you know, a hop varietal that aligns with, with their market. Well, now they've got 8,000 craft brewers who are saying, can you create these flavors? Can you create those flavors yeah. with hops? And these farmers are saying, fantastic. Yeah, I'll plant a couple of acres of this and a couple of acres of that. And mm-hmm. um, So, I mean, we make, a, we make a beer called Luponic Distortion, mm-hmm. which is a, um, a beer whereby we try it's, – it's an IPA. But we try to create flu- fruit flavors, not with extracts, but with hops, mm-hmm. real hops. Mm-hmm. And so we crawl all over the world. And uh, pull in these, um, in some cases, unnamed hops, new cultivars that, you know, give you sort of melon and kiwi and, mm-hmm. and uh, strawberry and, and lemon, real flavors. In the same way that the esters of a wine would be reminiscent yeah. of right, exactly. nut toasted hazelnuts yeah, or whatever or, it is, spice box. You know, grapefruit in a, yeah. in a Sauvignon Blanc or something like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so... So so yeah so the, so you know the the whole world that surrounds um, uh, craft beer is, is sort of be, is sort of beginning to sort of mirror mirror it reflect it. Mm. Um, but like I said, it's nothing new. I, I mean, that's one of the great things that we have coming out of a traditional wine family is that we've sort of seen this, yeah. and um, it's a you know once the genie's out of the bottle, it's it's um, it's hard to put back in. You were saying something about the size. Um, maybe you were saying twenty years ago. I can't, or no, perhaps further back than that. But you were saying there were something like three hundred craft breweries. Yeah, and now there are eighty five hundred. Correct, and there's, uh, you know, I think the numbers is, is, is two opening every day. Wow. 
And one of the other things that I, I thought was sort of in salient is that, you know, there's 11,500, 12,000 wineries in America at the moment, and they're, they're still growing. Um, but breweries are not constrained by climate. You can have a brewery anywhere, and you can have actually a, you know, a, a brewing community anywhere. I mean, there's a really strong brewing community in the Pacific Northwest, there's, right. there's, uh, up in the Northeast. Yeah. Um, you name it, there's, they're everywhere. Um, I mean, Chicago... I mean, it's it, you know the, the these brewing communities will will continue to proliferate, um, and the same dynamics that have driven sort of small wine making and um, drawn people to sort of pack it all up and mm. throw it all in to create something. Um, those you know those same forces apply to beer. I would say though, from I'm halfway an observer, halfway a little bit of an insider, but from what I can tell, the wine communities are less collaborative. And I don't know, I maybe I'm speaking too far on that, but it does seem like they are a bit siloed. Maybe a specific region or a specific trail will hang out together and, and co-market. But with beer, you see brewers coming together making special ales, special brews. I mean, it's it's happening all the time. Yeah, that's you know it's sort of interesting. It's a um, it's something people have said to us before, um, and I'm very involved with the California Craft Beer Association, so I've got a lot of friends across the board. And um, if they ever reached out for help, I would have no problem in helping. Um, it's sort of interesting. It's not that way in Belgium, for instance. Mm. You know, there, there's you know there's real um, different communities in the beer community. Um, maybe it's a dynamic of craft beer um who knows um i i see you know i see that cooperation in sort of winemaking communities mm. um as you said so you know paso wineries that are less than 15 years old maybe all have a sort of a some sort of simpatico who knows but um i think they're friends i yeah. have no doubt at all that they're yeah. friends but i'm seeing like you know, mashups between these two brewers are coming together for this special. Um, no, you're right. One off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Edition. We do. We probably do twenty collaborations a year where we have no financial benefit. Incredible, so, and no financial benefit. No financial benefit. It's it's purely a purely a. I'd love to work with this guy. Yes. I'd love to work with this girl. I'd love to. You know, I, th- I think I think we can create something interesting, and we'll get some brand glow yeah. over it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I mean the um, I mean we did a collaboration with a really incredibly hot brewery in Massachusetts called Trillium. Mm. We've you know we've known the guys for many years. They come to our invitational, and um, we wanted to brew a beer with them. We did, um, and um, you know the very fact that you know we you know we're part of their conversation. I'm sure it helps us in that market, no. but there's no direct financial benefit. Yeah. You bring up the invitational. My husband and I got to go one year. Oh, um, lucky you. And not because we hung out on the internet at, you know, 1158 <laughs> at night to get tickets. <laughs> A friend gave them to us. And okay. We felt very lucky, but good. You know, that was maybe nine years ago. Right. What's been the, what's been the arc with that event? Because it is so hard to get in. Is it still so hard? Yeah. No tickets sell out in less than a minute. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's nuts. And um, it's a, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. Actually, I mean, that is a true collaboration. I mean, we, we mm-hmm. collaborate with the um, 
Pioneer Day Committee for Paso Robles and with the city of Paso Robles. Um, you know, without them, we, we wouldn't, you know, they, they sort of provide all the infrastructure. It's a great space for it. Yeah. Too. We, we bring the relationships with the brewers. Um, and, um, you know, collectively, we make sure the brewers, if they're coming from New Zealand or from New York or from England or from Japan. Maryland. Yeah. yeah. That they are well looked after. And, and they see it as a break and not work. Yeah. And so there's a, real, there's a real sort of sense of esprit de corps and community, which is why we get all of these brewers that we invite. So it's, in some ways, it's, you know, people often say to me, well, well you, know, why don't you, you know, why aren't we including more breweries from California? And it's like, well, you can go to any festival in California, and, but you can't, you, know, you can't go and meet the guys from Garage Project yeah. in, um, in Auckland. You can't meet the guys from, uh, from, from Wellington, sorry. You, you, you can't meet the guys from, you know, wherever. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, know, that, that, um, you know, that piece is, is, I suppose, the function that we play. Is that that's what that festival does. It yeah. brings together friends from all over the world so people can try different beers. And they come out of respect also for Firestone Walker. And it's, and it's a testament to, I think, to our area and hospitality here that they say yes and that they come. Um, Japanese brewers, I mean, I I believe I tried something when we were at the Invitational, but that blew my mind. That's that's really happening there. There's a revolution with craft beer there in Italy. Um, Italy, Brazil. um, You know, what's fascinating is that Germany is still stubbornly um, struggling to sort of break the chains Is of tradition right? yeah and it's you know when you look at i mean we're getting off track here but you know the the germans obviously celebrate this thing called the reinheitsgebot mm-hmm. which is the bavarian purity law and it basically and it's a little bit like you know it's like playing baseball there's certain rules certain things you do mm-hmm. um and um you know german brewers believe there's certain ways you make beer and those traditions actually are at odds with innovation and craft beer so it's um it's taking a while for germany to get with it i'm sure when they get with mm-hmm. it as one of the you know great brewing nations of the world they'll you know they'll do really well but um yeah i mean it's the uk is a really robust craft mm-hmm. beer movement there um like you said italy spain um even france is beginning to sort of um uh you know, take a look at it, take a sniff. Yeah, take um, a sniff. <laughs> yes. But, uh, well, in your roots now here, I mean, talk a little bit about Duvel and the changes that have happened. Uh, was that just five years ago? Or was it yeah. more recent than that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, it's, as I said, it's, we went through a huge expansion. Um, you know, um, we are, you know, we're in a capital-intensive, um, marginal, labor-intensive business. So um, money is important in terms of building. Um, and, um, we, um, Adam and I about five, six years ago decided we, we wanted to grow the brewery, um, uh, more than anything to accommodate the, the, the meteoric growth of 805. And, uh, we needed to go find a, a lot of money. And, um, we, um, we, we went everywhere and we came back with, um, the, the Morgat family who, um, now own a majority of the brewery. Um, and um, have uh, basically helped build us to build the brewery to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, but more importantly, um, you know, Duval Morgat 
are are an insanely cool brewery out of Belgium. I mean, their credentials, both from a quality and sort of heritage, um, are, um, are just sort of, you know, we always dreamed of just sort of being able to know them. And um, they have, you know, they have, a, I mean, they're a family business just like us. Um, they're not huge. I mean, we're, a, we're um, they're about two and a half times bigger than we are. It's not always easy to find their stuff. I mean, it's not. No, it, I know. It is, it is small since yeah. you mentioned it. Yeah. 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 Um, but, um, you know, they're, likewise, they're sort of fascinated with the craft beer movement in California. They love to learn from it. They, they're, they're not operators in the U.S. In the, in the way, you know, other breweries are. Um, and um, so it was, it was just sort of perfect. And that was the, uh, you know, that was, you know, th- that was really, you know, why we did the transaction. And ultimately, you know, I mean, it's, it's part of an enduring sort of 100-year plan. Um, and, um, you, know, uh, at, you know, at some point, Adam and I are not going to be here forever. And, you know, we have... We have some kids in the business, um, but who knows whether they'll they'll stay. And um, so it's just creating a platform. You know, we want this brewery to be as relevant today in 50 years as it is today. And uh, um, that's sort of part of it. You so. make a lot of people happy, I'm sure, to know that it's not going anywhere and that it's not that it's not all resting on your shoulders because that's always tough. Yeah, no, absolutely. I hope not. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you mentioned that 80% of the beer that you make is consumed in California. Yeah, that's right. So I didn't realize that the Duvel um, arrangement happened after the rise of 805. Can you talk a little bit about why 805 came into existence? Well, you know, I like to say it was it was sort of serendipity. It was, um, I mean, I think I think what happened with 805 is, you know, we we decide we. It's sort of actually it was one of those classic sort of com- competitive things. I mean. Um, there was a there was a lot of uh, younger breweries coming up in the um, mainly in the central coast, and um, you know selling beer is is you know it's 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 blood and knuckles it's you know mm. it's 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 great stuff um, if you enjoy that, and um, so you know the, a lot of brewers are saying ah oh, yeah Firestones are too big you need to sort of deal with a local brewery and so on and so forth. Well, truly, we were local. Yeah. So, you know, we said, okay, well, we're just going to remind people um, that we're from this place. This place is important to us, and we're going to celebrate it. And what had actually happened is two, three years prior to that, um, Anheuser-Busch had gone throughout the country and trademarked area codes. Oh. Yeah. And um, they didn't trademark 805 and we noticed that so we said we'll trademark it and so we you know that that's that <laughs> Huge we did mistake we did it on as, their part yeah we did it <laughs> yeah, we did it as sort of a as a uh, point of pride yeah. um, and so when that all came together when it was like you know we need to talk about us being local um, and then we did something slightly different with the 805 is we we stopped talking about um craft beer mm-hmm. and we start started talking about american beer mm-hmm. and uh, we tapped into a whole consumer base that weren't interested in craft beer and, and what i mean by that they knew they were drinking craft beer and they ordered it but they didn't you know they couldn't tell you how many craft brewers there were in america they couldn't tell you what hops went into yeah. dba you know they were just they weren't geeks yeah they weren't geeks they knew they liked it they yeah. knew they were they were going to drink it rather than a you know american light pilsner but 
it just wasn't just wasn't a, a fascination of theirs. But they wanted to drink something different. Um, they had some dimension that might be local, um, and that's where it came from. So. Yeah, and it is so embraced. It's yeah, really embraced, and the whole. The um, messaging around it is so different from the Firestone Walker line. Yeah, absolutely. It's more, um, well, it's pretty gritty. Yeah, you know, it's sort of interesting. And that was another great piece of great luck. We had a, you know, there was a a local guy in the area um, who was an ex-pro surfer, fabulous guy, skateboard. I mean, he just sort of grew up in the the Central Coast. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he, you know, we like to say, people born here they're either sort of closet cowboys or closet surfers one of the two you know they're <laughs> aspiring to be one or the other yeah. and um you know he was all of those things and uh, he'd worked for volcom actually a very mm. sort of you know uh cool contemporary brand he came home to this area and we were lucky enough to snag him and say hey help us tell the story of this mm-hmm. and he did it um and he did it in a really powerful way and um he's as you know he's as much part of the brand to us as as anything um and um so yeah i mean that's it's been an interesting ride yeah and what percentage of your production is 805 um it's it's well over 60 percent now well over well, probably about 65 percent. so wow yeah and not all in can right uh no actually what's a, here's a strange thing for you um so we sell beer in 38 states and most of our states want it in cans Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, California likes beer in bottles. Oh, how funny! And and because so, we're persnickety. Who knows? Who knows? And eight oh five people like it in bottles. So that said, it is shifting. Uh, we're, we're beginning to see the shift towards cans uh, right across the board now. And California should shift. And and ultimately, why do you want to drink beer out of a bottle? I mean, it's not for, the quality isn't better. Yeah. Um, the carbon footprint's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, think about lugging 20 empty cans versus 20 empty bottles to the recycling. I mean, it's, right. it's pretty, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and you've, uh, I know that Firestone Walker has taken great pains to bring their carbon footprint under control and to minimize. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things that you're doing to, well, to we keep have, it sustainable? Actually, this month, we break, well, next month, we break ground on a solar array. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that solar array... Um, is going to be just under nine acres and wow. will provide about, um, fingers crossed, about 85% of the energy that the brewery needs. That's a, a good fit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a very good fit. Brewed with pastoral sunshine. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's something that we should be able to do based on the fact that we're in Paso Robles, you yeah. know, um, It's not as if we're in uh, Warsaw or, you know, I mean, it's... No, it's, it's consistent here. Yeah, we've got a lot of sunshine here, so... Yeah. Um, and um, in all other ways as a brewer, would, would you know, brewers, by the very nature that we've been doing it for so long, and energy and raw materials have always been expensive, and beer has always been cheap, um, brewers have always had to develop methods for being sustainable. I mean, you'd be blown away how brewers transfer energy from, you know, w- one asset to the next asset. I mean, we don't waste water we don't i mean there's so much that that we do that is built around efficiency um just naturally just by, naturally just, by extension of yeah being in brewers have developed these traditions equipment procedures processes you know over thousands of years that that um it's hard to be wasteful in a brewery i, I mean mm-hmm. sorry you, you can be wasteful 
in anywhere. Yeah. But it's it's easy to um, to be efficient in a brewery. Mm. So now you started in Buellton. Yeah. Now you have obviously Paso Robles, which seems to be the hub of production. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we so we have three. We have three breweries actually. Um, so we have um, you know we have the mothership that's here that is the brews pretty much all the beer. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have um, in Bjorton we have a, um, a wild ale fermentation production facility where we make lambic and wild ales and um, lambic style ales um, and uh, sort of uh, fruited sour beers, um, tr- traditional beers, very geeky. Um, very passionate following, complete folly. We love it. It's fascinating. Um, a little bit like winemaking. I mean, there's a couple of thousand barrels down there. And um, and then um, all the way down in Venice, California, in Los Angeles, um, we uh, we have what we call the propagator. And the propagator is where we've, we've put this um, pretty expensive but miniature version of our brewer, brewery down there where we do all our pilot brewing. Um, and because we've moved from a world whereby I just want to make one beer DBA to a world where now we have to make something like up to a hundred different beers a year. Um, we were constantly innovating, constantly innovating, Mm -hmm. constantly chasing the consumer's palate. Um, we can't do that here at the big brewery. Um, so we've, we, you know, we, we've set up this, this small pilot brewery right in the center of one of our largest markets. Is that uh, why you chose Venice? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We, 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 I mean, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, what I would sort of indifferent tastemakers, people who really don't yeah. really know who we are. They don't drive past the brewery. It's just we're a craft brewery. But they'll walk into that place and they'll pick a beer and we, you know, we know, wow, that beer is doing really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we should develop it. Um, so, so we have these three locations and, um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's you know that's really the, the the sort of the sum total of us I think where of our our ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know I I we have a we have a nat, we have an international footprint. I mean we sell beer in 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 eight other countries as much as, mm-hmm. um, but our our future is California. Yeah. Um, that's where I can guarantee you'll find our beer fifty years from now. Um, it could be our future could be west of the Rockies. If if things go absolutely crazy, um, but if it doesn't, you know, as I, you know, we have an annual gathering. We call it a revelry where all the employees come together. And I said, if you know, if if, if we could freeze the brewery right now, mm-hmm. I we'd do it. We'd take that trade. It's it's if it's we're big enough to be uh, robust, but small enough to still wrap our arms around everybody at the brewery and what we're doing and. Um, you know, I feel like we've achieved everything that we ever could have dreamed of. So you'd be okay with just stopping? Now. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Not stopping, but freezing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there are different thresholds I know for production and for um, for employees for being able to comfortably take care of a group of employees. So it sounds like you've hit numerous thresholds along yeah. the way, <laughs> growing pains. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we had, you know, I. Um, Actually, I'm sitting here, and I just saw the first employee we ever had walk by oh, here, heading into a safety. Who meet. is that? Safety. It's a guy called Miguel Ibarra. He he brewed our first, brewed for us for the first three years. He actually looks mm-hmm. after all our barrels now. But um, and uh, a great friend of mine now. Um, mm-hmm. But um, you know, now we you know we have you know several hundred people on the payroll, yeah. and 
it's it's a it's a it's a huge community. It's, mm. it's a it's a it's a it's a huge responsibility, yeah. um, uh, and that you know ultimately that drives a lot of our decisions. You know, in, in some ways, I mean, you know, when you have several hundred people who, um, you know, you're we're all on the same ship. You, you know, you have to you you have to be really careful mm. um, how you you know what you do and um, and uh, but you know, hopefully it all works out. So. I think I think it's working out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that you still have your first employees quite amazing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, I ask everybody on here what they would eat at their last meal and we're saying this is a positive thing you're having a good time you you already know okay tomorrow's it so i'm going to invite so and so we're going to eat here but i think for you it's probably appropriate to ask what your last beer would be well you know i can tell you what my my last meal would be yes go um as well as my last bit my last beer would be an english pale ale it would be dba yes um it it, it would be in a wine glass um Mm. You should. This is actually a great hint to anybody. Start drinking beer in a wine glass. Mm-hmm. It transforms the experience. Yeah. Your whole relationship with beer will change, and it's a simple act of putting it in a different vessel. Um, never drink it out of the bottle or out of the can. Well, and now you can buy it out of a can because you're drinking it out of a wine glass, so it really doesn't matter right. where it's coming from. Bingo. Yeah. Um, so it would be DBA in a wine glass. Food would be Dover Sol um, mm-hmm. with... Um, I'm an Englishman with a little boiled spinach, um, some uh, uh, and some, you know, some really bad for me French sauce. Um, but uh, um, that would be that would be um, that would be for me a great way to go out. Yeah, back to your roots too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, David Walker, for talking to me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Consumed. It is a labor of love, and I appreciate anyone willing to give me their ears for an hour. Consumed is edited by Chris Lambert. If you have ideas for guests I should interview on Consumed, please visit the contact page at letsgetconsumed.com and be sure to sign up for the Consumed newsletter. Until next time, this is Jamie Lewis. Thanks for getting consumed with me. Consumed.